diving obviously into Second John here. Uh, be discerning in truth. And uh, you, you work through this. This is the second shortest letter in the Bible. Third John is the shortest by a few, uh, few words there. Uh, but we're looking at being discerning in truth. And uh, I went to, in high school, I went to a private Christian school. And one day in PE, I got into a fight. Now, let me describe this. It's a Christian school fight, which means a lot of talking, a little pushing, and zero punching or bleeding. So, but we got into a fight apparently. And um, we were sent to the principal's office because, you know, you had to get everything clarified. And I still remember sitting in the principal's office and, um, and, and pride and emotions d- doesn't allow you to correct what's said, right? So you're sitting there. And I remember uh, the principal recounting what he knew of the story. He had heard it from the PE teacher and now he's recounting it to um, the combatant and I on, on what we're doing. And I remember this because the gym teacher hated my family with a passion, just, just couldn't stand them. I blame it on my older brother. It's nothing I did, but either way, um, didn't like us. And so I had the whole weight of the situation had been pinned on me. I had started said Christian school fight. It was my fault. Well, as the principal is recounting the details, and as I mentioned, you're a, you're a teenage boy, with another teenage boy, and you're both sitting there thinking, why do we get ourselves into trouble? We're both friends. Wait, why do we we do this? Neither of us are interested in fixing the story, but I remember the principal would say it multiple times. So Kenny started the fight, is what he kept on saying. And I'm not even thinking of the implications there. Well, finally, the other kid spoke up, and he says, no, I started it. I'm the one that, that initially pushed Kenny. And again, I just want you to realize when I say fight that this is this is light duty uh, stuff here. But all I have to say, the whole time I was sitting there, I had been thinking, I didn't start the fight. It wasn't my fault. I wasn't going to speak up. Pride had overtaken me in that moment, and I was just not going to correct the story. But the other kid said, no, I did it. The truth came out in the story. Well, both of us got a day off of school. That's how we saw it. And so two days later, we returned to school. Now, when you get free time in that way, uh, the school also punishes you by saying you get a zero on anything that took place during that day. The other kid, I don't think it mattered to him. Academically, I was doing a bit better. But um, so we, we dove in. I come back to school and find out I've missed a math test. So this is, this is going to be a big fat goose egg for me. Uh, I've never gotten a zero on a test. But I remember my teacher, she said to me, you're supposed to get a zero on this test. But I heard that you didn't start the fight. It was clarified. And so I want you to take the test. I don't think you should get a zero. Um, and she was more of an old school teacher. She's like, you didn't start the fight. You know, you have to defend yourself in this terrible situation. Um, and so she let me take the test and not get a zero. But that decision was built from truth. If, and the guy's name was Dustin, hadn't spoken up, and no, it's not my brother-in-law, Dustin, but it was another Dustin at school there. It's a small Christian school, but either way, Dustin hadn't spoken up, hadn't shared the truth. I would have landed with a zero on a test because to Mrs. Berggren, if you started the fight, you faced the punishment, but if you defended yourself, then she was going to have you take the test. She then broke school rules to let me get the exam. But the truth, the decision was built from truth. Now, John writes this letter to exhort the church to be discerning in truth, to make decisions and to act 
on truth, on what are the facts. Truth is the backdrop of our decisions, he's saying. It's the backdrop of our associations. It's the backdrop of our life. We are to do all things with God's truth in mind. Now, John addresses this letter to the elect lady and her children. If you dive into commentators and scholarly works, uh, they're about split on what the reference is. Some believe it is a, uh, he's using the idea of elect lady and her children to speak of the church. Others are adamant that it's an elect lady, it's a saved lady, and it's speaking to her biological children. And I think you can see a connection to both. Uh, without being dogmatic, I, I think you could see in, in this person that this is where the church met. It was her home. This is what I can envision based on the culture. Um, if you look back into Acts, and if you, you dig into the story of the early church, the first church in Jerusalem, uh, John Mark's mother housed the church there. And so it was not uncommon, actually it was the norm, for a church to meet at a home. Church buildings don't show up until the third century AD. And it makes sense that as John is writing, he's writing to the person where the church is meeting. And so I think as you read this, the application um, that he makes is boarding traveling teachers. And so you're going to see this connection to false teachers. And again, we need to overcome the hurdle of culture, right? Because that's just not the norm for us. If someone travels in, we put them up in a hotel. We also know a lot about what somebody says. If you want to know what in the world City Light talks about and how they teach, what do you do? You can hit live stream. You can check us out, right? Well, that's not possible in the early church. They have people coming in, claiming an association, and people boarded them. Uh, to stay at an inn was to stay at a, not only was it rough, but it was associated with immorality. And so you typically didn't stay at the inn. You wouldn't be at the Holiday Inn because it had, had connections to other activities. And so the address to her would be almost in this way. The church meets at your house. He's talking to the whole church, but because the context of application for them is hospitality, oftentimes that person will be put up in the home where the church would meet. And so this letter of truth, though addressed to her and referencing her children, which I think can is easily talking about the church as a whole, um, can be read and applied to everyone and would have been read to the congregation based from her home. However, and I say this, neither position in any way undermines the importance or implication of this letter. We can know with certainty that it is for all the church to read and apply. Uh, there's no change in its application. God's word is given to his children, and it's actually given to us so that we do apply. And so as we dive in, we need to see this about this letter. It is a letter about truth and its bearing on our life. It is a short letter. As I mentioned, it's the second shortest book of the Bible. It has 245 Greek words. Third John has 219 Greek words. No, I didn't go count it in Greek. Someone wrote that down. So I know that information, but it's, it's short. It fits on and, and put it in perspective. It fits on one page. So you're writing a note to somebody and it's going to fit on one parchment or one sheet of paper. And so John, as he writes, is packing a lot into this. And so from and through the introduction all the way into the conclusion and, and beyond, he is teaching principles surrounding truth. And he begins by showing that we must connect in the truth, that our connection to each other is 
grounded in truth. Look at verses 1 through 3, which does encompass the, the classic introduction to the letter uh, from the standpoint of letter writing during that period. <laughs> it says this, "...the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all they that have known the truth." In other words, I love you in truth, and everyone who knows the truth loves you in truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Now, verse 3 is your quintessential greeting connection. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And I hope you can see something here that truth is a key part of this whole letter. Truth is first and foremost, is the backdrop of all fellowship. We are family in Christ because we are united in truth. Our emotions toward fellow believers and and that our love is grounded in the truth. John Stott notes this, we love each other not because we're temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth which we share. And what he's saying is this, we don't gather as a church because we all have the same hobbies or we're all the same type of person or that our, our personalities connect. We gather together and are one in a family because of truth, not because of similarities. It centers in that truth because, and also connected to this, because of that, we would never compromise truth for the sake of love because real biblical love is founded upon truth. And so what, what he's trying to say is, he's in, and he's going to drive in this letter as we move down to love one another. That's, again, his theme. John does not leave the idea of loving one another. But John in this letter is really making sure they understand something, that everything is centered in truth. You aren't removing truth. If you've encountered people say, well, I'm just going to be loving. My, my job is to be loving. No, your job is to be truthful and then follow the command of love. Do not stray from the truth. And, and so John is making clear that, that we are to love, our fellowship is driven from this, but you erode the truth and you ultimately erode biblical love and you destroy biblical fellowship. There is no fellowship, true biblical fellowship, without the truth. Aiken notes this, to maintain a healthy and growing community, the church must exhibit a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise, and they must love one another in a way that knows no boundaries. Uh, Because as MacArthur explains, God's purpose will never be accomplished by compromising his truth. Love for souls is never manifested by minimizing the truth. When anyone says to you, well, I don't, I, don't share, I, I don't want to share the straight biblical truth because it might offend somebody. It might not be as loving as I want it to be. And John is writing to the church and saying, look, you're not loving anybody when you stray from the truth. Paul writes, speak the truth in love. There is a, there is a how to speak truth, not what we change truth to. And so John is, this is his version of that. The fellowship around that is centered on truth. Now, John notes, though, that his love is grounded in truth. And then he states that his love is real and personal. That's verse one, right? It's about a relationship. He himself loves them individually in Christ. And then he states something else. He says, anyone who knows the truth, really knows the truth, will love the church in truth. 
or as I like to write, we'll love the true church. It's not going to deviate into, um, it's not an emotion he's focusing on. He's basically saying that if you're grounded in truth, then you will love the church that is grounded in truth. I put as a thought question here, I wonder if that is how we talk about the church. Do we talk about the church that we love the church in truth? Do we get personal about our care for the church? Do we say, I love you, me, myself, I love you. Not I have to love you, but I do love you. And that anyone that's knowing truth, filled with truth, that they will be loving. We are united in truth with our emotions, and I put in parentheses, our love grounded in truth, We also see that our connection with fellow believers is centered in truth. The link is made, all they that have known the truth. Not only is it John, it's not just the elder that does this. Every single believer is going to love in truth. Those who know the truth will be connected with each other by that truth in love. (laughs) And what I'm trying to drive to on fellowship is typically we view fellowship and say, well, the church isn't loving enough and therefore there's no fellowship there. That's not a loving church. And look, we want to be a loving church. The mandate to love one another is there. What John is doing in this second letter, his his letter out, and it's to likely a different church in the group, is he's telling them that you need to be grounded in truth. See, a church cannot love itself to fellowship. It has to be centered in truth, then obey the command to love in truth. And so John, as he is so famous for doing, you're going to see this in the letter, is going to keep overlapping themes. He doesn't just repeat himself, but he interrelates and interweaves the concepts together. Because as he makes clear, our whole exchange and fellowship comes from being saturated in truth. Verse 2 says this. I'm just going to read the whole verse. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, so is, is grounded in us, and shall be with us forever. And the whole point is this. There is a constant indwelling of truth that lasts. We are to be saturated in truth. We don't have a little bit of truth. Truth is who we are. It's supposed to be descriptive of us which as John closes his introduction, results in us being blessed in truth. That's verse three. See, we're reunited. How are we connecting? How is John linked to the church? In truth, he loves them. And he says, anyone who has the truth will love the true church, just to see the overlapping themes. And then he dives in and says, the truth dwells in us and it's gonna be with us forever. And in other words, we're saturated in truth. And then as he closes it, we're blessed in truth. That's verse three, God's grace, right? Grace be with you, which I'm just gonna define them. I think we all know it, but God's grace, which is getting what we do not deserve, tied to his mercy, which is not getting what we actually merit. So his grace, getting what is not supposed to be ours, And his mercy, not giving us the punishment we're supposed to have, results in perfect peace with God. And the idea of peace is a relationship, a connection, which we understand, right? His grace and his mercy makes peace possible. The world is at at battle and enmity is in, in conflict with God. They may not say that, but that's what they are. They resist it, but we are at peace with God. And John makes perfectly clear that's possible only in truth. He states, as he's done so 
emphatically in 1 John that Jesus is divine, equal with God. That's why he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. He is really emphasizing the divinity of Christ in this letter here from the start. And it's all linked. Um, our, the grace, mercy, and the peace is uniquely comes from the only one who provides that channel of God's eternal grace, mercy, and peace. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And how does he say it? In truth and love. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the basis for our connection? If it's anything but biblical truth, it will fall apart. If our church is connected because we all hunt or we all eat steak or we all love fried chicken, if there's some other connection, I did all food things in there, but the hunting thing, I'm not, but it's, it does result in meat for you to eat. So was all food related there. Sorry. But if our connection is that you have the same personality as me, or you have the same background as me, or you have the same uh, even language as me, then, then it is going to fall apart. We can't be unified over the fact that we love everyone and accept everyone and we condone everything. It's, it's going to fall apart. It has to be centered in truth, yet it also is not okay to lack connection or love for the family of God. And that's the other part of this thing. If you know the truth, you love God's family. And when you love God's family, it's always in truth. But you can't separate the two. If you have truth dwelling in you, then you will love the church on the basis of that truth. But here's the question. Are you saturated with truth? Because that's what he says in verse 2. We're, we're supposed to be saturated. It dwells in us and will stay with us forever. And then does that truth result in love for the church? As we can see, John expected truth to permeate believers. He, he wasn't just saying, you need to get to the point where truth permeates you. He's saying truth permeates you. It was to characterize them. It was to be a trait obvious to all around them as they act in the truth. That's verses four through six. Four says this, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. In other words, John is saying, and in the context, if you're saying it's just written to a lady and her children, then he's saying that some of her children walked in truth and John rejoiced in that. I think it's a broader context written to the church that met in her house. And so her children that reference there is speaking to people in the church. He says, I rejoice when I see people in the church walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Lord or from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. John is never leaving the theme of love. You cannot escape it. First through third John, if you walk away and say, I wonder if I should love the church, you've missed it. Go back and read first through third John. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. John, in speaking of the children of the dear lady, makes clear that he derives joy. He celebrates in seeing them living in truth. An evangelist from a previous generation known for some witty statements said this often. He said, what we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. What we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. John is making that point here by his expression of joy. He rejoices in seeing truth grab hold of head, heart, 
and hands. In other words, truth is something you know intellectually. It's something that you have internalized, and it's something that affects what you do. So it changes everything about who you are. We're to walk in the truth, which also means that we obey the truth. That's verses 5 and 6. Classic John overlap here, right? Love one another. Love God. How do you show you love God? By keeping his commandments. John makes it clear we're commanded to love the true church. And living out truth involves following God's commands, one of which is loving the church. So you love God. And he said this in 1 John. Now he says here, hey, you know, it's not a new commandment. This is not, this is not something that we've brought up just now. This is not a change. But you're to love one another. And see, what's fascinating is, is as you um, love the church, and as we exercise that in truth, what occurs is that that points to the gospel and glorifies our Savior. But in case we get confused, which we often do, John clarifies that love is best expressed in our walk of obedience. This is love, that we walk after his commandments. So John first says, love one another. It's not a new commandment. Now, if you're going to be loving, the best way to do that is by being obedient. And as he does so often, he makes his point with the themes overlapping and repeating. One writer sums it up well. Walk in the command to love and love the commands in which you walk. Truth is something we believe. Truth is also something we live. But are we living our lives in truth? If you had to stop and define your life, is it defined as truth? Is it lived in truth? And let me clarify, because we live in today's world, not your truth. I don't really care. Actually, I do care. If you're living your truth, you're probably, you are living in sin. The only truth you can live out is his truth. And that's what John's talking about. Just to answer that question from society. That means that God's truth so permeates our life as to be the primary, actually the solitary director of our lives. That's what living truth is. Do I live truth? Then God's truth is the only director of my life. We're going to get to that. Spiritual boot camp, we're going to dive into the Bible as the authority. That's his truth. And it is supposed to permeate our life. Not just that it has first shot, it has only shot at sending or directing our life. Are we living truth that way? See, John is, is masterful, I think, in this, in this context in that he is able to softly bring a point to bear and then he drives his point home where you can't run from it anymore. He, he, he makes it impossible. So you need to love one another and she's thinking and the church is thinking we have been loving, we have everyone in, we let anyone talk, we just, we've been super loving and then suddenly it's, it's in love but we, we show love by walking after his commands. Because sadly, truth will be attacked. Truth will be undermined and distorted. So as we look to be discerning in truth, we must be, and this is what he kind of, the bulk of his letters about actually, <coughs> be loyal to the truth. Verse 7 says this, For many deceivers are entered into the world. And this, if you're looking through Scripture, is a shift in his, his conversation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new point coming up now. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
Just to layer it up, right? Not just Antichrist, not just a deceiver, but this is a liar Antichrist. They're against Christ and they're going to deceive. And then eight, the warning, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. <laughs> Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, to any of you like, hey, just preach, but don't give us all that doctrine. You have to have the doctrine. Um, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he, that ab- for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. And I want you to realize something. Here is the, the heart of the message. This is the heart of his letter. Very short letter. Here's the bulk of it locked in, and it's all about discernment. Be loyal to the truth. We need to, one, guard the truth. John begins with a warning, and it comes directly after his connection to our love. He has just spent some time saying we connect, we're going to act and live out truth, and we're going to be loving to another. That's God's command, love the church. And you can see the church there. He's not trying to be tricky, but he's trying to make sure he doesn't negate the truth that we love the church. But right at the end of that paragraph, when he was writing, he says, now we show love by obeying God. And now he's turning the corner again and he says, we're commanded to love, but we must love discerningly. We cannot bypass truth in our endeavor to show love. That's what our society does. That's what, sadly, the church uh, in the Western world seems to do. We bypass truth to manifest love. And usually the love we manifest will align with what society thinks is love. So society wants you to condone certain behaviors and they'll say, ah, if you agree with us, you're loving. So if you want to be the church, you better agree with us because that's the only way you can be loving. And if you speak against us, you're hateful, which I'm I'm sure you can pick up. It's cancel culture that, that permeates our life. And John is literally fascinating to me that he's writing in the first century and he's basically saying, don't cave to that. Don't get caught up in that. Don't bypass truth in your fake way of showing love. As he said before, you lose truth, you can't have love anyway. So now he's building to it. Uh, John Stott, I'm quoting him again, old English preacher. um, Our love for others is not to undermine our loyalty to the truth. Don't ever tell me you've bent truth to be loving because what you've done has been hateful. And now you've added liar to that deceiver, and as John says, Antichrist. Just the nice old John is cutting sharply to this. We must remember that where God's truth is and goes, Satan and company are sure to follow. That's what John's warning them. They bring a confess-not attitude concerning Jesus Christ. They don't confess Jesus Christ. That's the heart and soul of it. I read through and, and, and read a lot every week, but... You read through some of these liberal theologians and and they're sitting there embedded in liberal churches and writing books and people are publishing this garbage and it goes out there and you read it and they talk about uh, Jesus not being real. And it's such, it, it seems so complicated when you read their arguments until you break it down like John does and you say they don't confess Jesus Christ. It's pretty simple. They bring a confess not attitude There will be something that does not align with God's truth. And John makes clear, and this is what really hits home. He's making clear that he expects you to be discerning and that you're capable of being discerning. He's not saying, 
oh no, the wolf is out there, hide under your bed because you'll never see him coming and you'll never be able to attack, get rid of the wolf. He says, the wolf is coming and I expect you to kill the wolf. I expect you to take care of this. You as a believer have truth and you can pass anything you hear through scripture. We don't need to be deceived and you don't need a seminary degree to not be deceived. You are capable as a believer. I saw an interesting diagram um, when I was reading through that used basic math symbols of adding, subtracting, dividing, and multiplying to help us recognize bad doctrine. I wanted to run through this. Basically, this diagram said this, look out for additions where they add an extra biblical source of authority by prophet, pen, or professor. Watch out for additions. And I I love the addition of professor because that's where our young people are being attacked, sadly, even in Christian universities. But that is what permeates the professor with the power that he or she has in that moment and that control. and, And it circles away from truth. Watch out for extra biblical source of authority by prophet, pen, or professor. Watch out for subtractions where they subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If they say he's not the son of God, if they don't say he's fully human and fully God, that he died for their sins, if they subtract from anything, you know that they're a deceiver and an antichrist. They deny his deity and find inadequate his work of redemption. In some way, shape, or form, it's not sufficient. They subtract from it. Watch out for divisions where they divide our allegiance from God through Christ alone to others. And I would put to anything else. There's people who I've read who are attempting to divide your allegiance from Christ alone to others or other movements or other ideas or to a social justice. Don't divide your allegiance. You can know the lie because they want your commitment to something other than Christ alone. And watch out for multiplications where they multiply requirements for salvation pushing for some form of works salvation, which by the way, and I strive to not be political whenever I speak, but it cannot be avoided sometimes to apply to our culture. Right now, our culture, and by our culture, I'm not talking about the people who aren't part of the church and hate God out there. I'm talking about the people that sit in church so often and are now preaching a rhetoric. They're using both division and multiplication. They want to divide your loyalty to something else, and then they're going to multiply that work to salvation in some way, shape, or form. We must be ready. We must look to yourselves. You must watch out, it says. We have to watch out, pay attention, and be loyal to the truth. Don't lose ground. Don't let deceivers in to taint the truth. Guard it. And I put an exclamation point. John is not casual about this. And we're going to see how serious he gets about it. But right at the beginning, he says, look, they're coming and they're going to confess not. And you need to be aware of how they do this. And look, you don't have to know the nuance of any false religion that's out there. You need to go right to scripture. And and honestly, they're going to do something with the work of Jesus Christ. They're going to do something there. You know it. That's what John's been saying. The doctrine of Christ. Know the doctrine of Christ. Know what he came to do because that's how they're going to undermine. 
And in our loyalty to truth, we must guard it. And beyond that, we must defend the truth. This is now 9 through 11. And here it gets active and John becomes adamant. This is John, and I would say drawing a line in the sand, but he would never call it sand. He's built a concrete wall and says, this is what it is. He exposes the enemy, the one that hath not God. And he makes it clear that such a distinction requires us to actively defend the truth, to actively distance ourselves from the liars. To distance yourself from a lie, you need to know the truth. And so he, he zeroes in on the doctrine of Christ. If you read 1 John, he's adamant about who Christ is. And in 2 John, even in his introduction, he's adamant about Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of the Father, the divinity of Christ and what he's done. You need to know the doctrine of Christ because they're going to find a way to pollute it and it can get very tricky. I read an article in a Christian magazine that added... And again, I hate using these terms because I know it can set a dynamic. And so I just want you to set aside your dynamic and your politics. But it said an article that added being woke to adequately living and presenting the gospel. They called for it to be woven into the fabric, the essence of the gospel message. And they were skilled in their writing. This was not something you read and you say, Man, this person is a belligerent, nasty ad. This was, was masterfully written. They used tricky language. They try to make you feel that their argument was biblical. They even quoted verses. And they made this, this emotion. It's a short article, and I'm always fascinated by people's ability to write, even as you see the emotion work. And, and they, they basically said that if you miss this point in this teaching mentality, um, you're really missing reality, that you're missing the point of Scripture. And here's the thing, it was all a fraud. It made the truth of Christ subservient to our culture while pretending to present the full gospel message. And again, they did a phenomenal job in trying to not be offensive. So you didn't come across this article. You ever read something and someone writes something so blatantly frustrating that you're like, you're instantly, your defenses come up. That was not the case with this. It was written in a way to come across unoffensive, like someone walking beside you and trying to get you to see the full truth. Let me help you see what's going on. That was the idea behind the article. But the reality is this, it was just an addition to the gospel message that then rendered it a lie that we're mandated to resist. Because something else was added to the gospel message. You know why it's easy to see why it's a lie? They added to what you need to do to get saved. That you are not presenting the full gospel unless you included something extra. The skill and smoothness of the deceit, the acceptedness in our world of a certain way of thinking one that's even being promoted, in no way excuses us for falling prey to it. I use that example because I think it's easy to find someone who automatically says, you need more than Christ to really be saved. If you're going to present the gospel, you definitely have to add in our cultural mantra. By the way, whether it's this or that, and there's always changing, anything added to the gospel message, Paul said, should be accursed. It's anathema. And actually, the book of Galatians, if you have a wrestling with culture and our current 
conversation. Read that book of the Bible and you will get a clear answer. I think it's Galatians 3.28 to help you out. But, but the reality is this. This smooth article, this very, oh, I call, I mean, masterfully written piece didn't excuse me or anyone else from being discerning and falling prey to it. Paul, uh, John writes this, and you expect Paul to write this kind of thing. He says, don't engage or fellowship with them. There is a dividing line, and that line is God's truth. And by the way, this whole topic that I've used as an illustration, I want you to see it as an illustration. Uh, there's people have written books, good, solid uh, expositors of Scripture, and are saying the same thing. It's a dividing line. It's a line that, that will break fellowship. It's not just a disagreement because it adds to the gospel. And it goes to that same thing. Whether you're dividing allegiance or multiplying the need to do works to get saved, or you're adding some layer of of something or some other teaching, it doesn't matter what it is. You have to be discerning, and we're supposed to break fellowship there. John makes it clear that we actively resist this teaching. We don't give it a platform. That's the word we would use in our day. What what John is saying is, is don't give them a room and board. Don't house them. And then he goes one step further, and I want you to catch the weight of this. Um, Don't even greet them. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Don't say God bless and go on your way. He says, don't even say that. You're participating in them. Now, John, I I love this guy. When he walked into, uh, there's a story uh, from, not from scripture, but ancient literature that says he walked into a bathhouse and the one guy that he's been talking about that I can't pronounce his name, we'll call him Senny. He was out there censuring, I think. And he saw him in the bathhouse. He said, let's get out. It's going to crumble down on his head. This guy is so false. We got to get out of here. He was willing to, to make a point. But he says, don't greet him. How is our application? Don't condone or accept it. If you read a book and it has it in it, let me recommend what you do with that book. Throw it in the trash can. Don't, don't try to find the good in it. That's what John's saying. Be, be, be diligent. Be discerning in truth. Because if you accept or condone or, or give it a platform, John says this, you are participating in their evil. Because you become a partaker of his evil deeds. So the question you have to ask yourself is, Are we loyal to the truth? Can you knowingly guard it? And I use that word. Do you have what it takes? Do you have the doctrine of Christ embedded in your heart and mind that you're able to guard it? Meaning you understand truth and doctrine well enough to know when it is being threatened. And then do you actively defend it? Can you? Do you have the tools? And John says you do, because as a believer, you have it and you've got his word. And then do you actually defend it? Now, John wraps up his single sheet letter, the nice one parchment sending off with a desire to teach so much more, which points to their and hopefully our need to long for the truth. 12 and 13 is his conclusion. He's finished the heart. Now he's moving on. I have many things to write unto you. I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. And that's the other, um, I think, connotation that referencing the whole church, the elect sister. It'd be really interesting if 
he's writing a sister and then he's from the, you know, it sounds like it's another church that he's writing from. Um, we must always be learning the truth. Now, when John says, I have so much more to teach you and I'm going to come teach you face to face, I want you to understand this. That implies that they're going to be willing to listen face to face. And by the way, in Greek, it's not face to face, it's mouth to mouth. So it's talking to talking. It's we're going to have a very personal relationship and a personal conversation. They're referencing that idea. Mouth to mouth references the same as our face to face. I want to see you face to face. And it's very individual and personal. I want to come and I want to talk to the church more about truth. And it implies that he's going to be joyful because they're going to desire that conversation. And look, We're supposed to be people who long for the truth, forever learning more of his absolute truth. Not more of our society's subjective truth, but more of his absolute truth. So ask yourself this question, do I long for the truth? Be honest. Do you long for the truth? And again, I hate to keep pre-preaching spiritual boot camp, but when you don't want to study God's word and it's the authority in your life and it carries the truth and you're saying it's such a struggle to study God's word, there is a a heart issue there because there's a lack of longing. Nothing could be more face-to-face than God's word in front of you and you get to read it and understand it. Now to close this one out, one commentator notes this, in an age of relativism and skepticism, the church must remain firmly anchored to the solid foundation of divine truth. What is our responsibility? Truth is our responsibility. There's no place for insipid, shallow, theologically contentless preaching. There's no room for a talk that's to build you up emotionally. There's room for preaching from God's word for worship based on emotion devoid of truth, or for tolerating false teaching. Look, I I have a, I'm going to break into this quote here. There's people I I really respect and adore, but I cannot, I have a a huge issue with them because they'll bring a preacher in that doesn't align with with a creation view of the start of this world. They're theistic evolutionists. And I even asked uh, my uncle one time that knew this pastor, and he's famous and he's amazing. And I, I really love hearing him preach and what he writes. But how do you bring that guy in his church? Like, oh, they'll never preach that. Yeah, John says, don't bring him into your church because they're liars and you shouldn't do that. So he's lacking discernment in that mo- point because here there's no virtue in ignorance. There's no substitute for learning, loving, and guarding the truth. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we discerning in truth? Do we connect in truth? Do we act in truth? Do we remain loyal to truth? And are we constantly longing for the truth? And this is the big question. Does that describe you? Because as John made clear to this church and family, and he makes clear to us, that is God's expectation for us. To connect in truth, to act in truth, to remain loyal to the truth, And to long for truth is not the definition of the super Christian. It's the definition of a Christian. Because that is what God expects from his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together to study your word. John, uh, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, masterfully just confronts us on how weak we are with truth. How easy it is. Uh, We can even see in people we love and respect how easy it is to bend 
the rule that he's given, the distance he asks us to put. And I, I hope and pray that as individual believers, we will recognize your expectation for us, that we will be a church that is saturated in truth, that our expression of fellowship, which I hope is, is deep and loving, is caring, that, that, it, that it brings people in, that allows them to grow in Christ, that, that's not a, a, a nasty, judgmental look, uh, not legalistic, but instead embraces people and helps them see the truth and is, is a light to the truth. I hope that we're that way, but I hope that every ounce of our emotions is grounded in truth, that we will not bend on the truth uh, in the exercise of maybe our desire um, for the right emotions. Help us to follow your commands. You make it clear that if we love you, we'll follow your commands. You've commanded us to love your church. Help us to express love in truth. And give us the strength to be discerning, not the nastiness or the obnoxiousness to be discerning, but instead the strength to be discerning, to know the doctrine of Christ. John made it perfectly clear, where is the dividing line? And it's around your son, Jesus Christ. If we add to his work in any way, shape, or form, if we hint to adding to his work in any shape or form, John makes it clear, separate. It is a dividing line. Give us the fortitude and strength to be loyal to the truth, to know the doctrine of Christ, to understand him alone, and that our allegiance is to him alone, and that we will be willing uh, to stand for truth no matter what our world says or does or pressures us to do. In your precious and holy name, amen.